Well, good morning, City Light. My name is Joe, and I serve as one of the pastors here. Um, and before we jump in, I just want to uh, just take a minute and just acknowledge it's been it's been a rough week around here. Uh, a lot of uh, flood waters and, and different things that have just kind of surprised us in the last week. And um, I know uh, in this room, there's probably a lot of people that have been personally affected uh, by what's going on, uh, or, or at least have had friends and family members that have, been, that have been affected by it. So number one, I want you uh, to know that we're praying. Uh, we're praying with you. We're praying for you. Um, additionally, Gavin uh, will have some words uh, here after the sermon just on uh, a time of prayer, but then also what can we do as a church practically? How can we move towards those who are suffering uh, in our city and in our state right now? So just want to acknowledge that before we get going um, and let you know that there's going to be a time uh, at the end where we can respond to that. Well, if you have not yet, go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. That's where we're going to be today. Uh, we're actually going to be going through verses 1 to 28, but this morning I'm going to act like more of a tour guide through these verses. I'm going to highlight some of the main themes that Matthew is pointing to uh, with these two interactions with Jesus. And so keep your Bibles open because I'm going to be hopping around a little bit uh, through 1 to 28. And as we get started this morning, I wanted to let you know that you may have thought as you got up this morning and you started to get ready and you got in your car and you started to come here that you were coming to church. But I want to let you know that's not the case. This morning, you're actually coming to a doctor's appointment, which you're sitting in a chair waiting, so that's appropriate. You're at a doctor's appointment. Um, but uh, whether you knew it or not, you've been experiencing some symptoms that Jesus is going to diagnose and show us the treatment for today. Through an interaction with the religious leaders in our text, Jesus is going to diagnose a problem in them and then in us that only he has the remedy for. Now, how many in this room are internet doctors? Now, by internet doctors, let me just explain myself. This is when you start to have symptoms, you come to the realization that you've been given an honorary medical degree from WebMD. Is that you? So you get some symptoms, you type it in, you go and you treat yourself. Well, I have to admit, I am the chief sinner in this area. Uh, in fact, one of my wife's major complaints about me is that I frequently refuse to go to the doctor. Um, and so when I have some symptoms, I'll, I'll, I'll go. So say, you know, it'll usually look like this. Like I've got a headache, uh, my neck is stiff, I've got some achy muscles. And so I go in and I type in all my symptoms like, oh, good, I have a brain hemorrhage. I'm sure I'll be fine if I just rest and, and, you know, maybe eat a little bit better. I'm sure it's there because, you know, I ate too much gluten this week. But the, the, the real problem is not that I am, like, almost always misdiagnosing myself. Uh, it's that I'm not actually entrusting myself to someone with some actual expertise, right? I've got some symptoms, and I think I can figure this thing out on my own. I don't go to an actual doctor which, with an actual medical degree to get this thing figured out. And so in our passage, Jesus is going to show us that we have some symptoms as well. But these outward symptoms are actually there because of a problem in our heart. He says that these outward things that we show are actually because of a problem that we have in our heart. And this sickness of the heart is going to affect us in one of two ways. 
One, it might be keeping you from knowing Jesus and being in his kingdom. We're going to see a group of people, the Pharisees, who are on the outside of God's kingdom looking in because they're too worried about their outward appearance and do not have soft hearts towards Jesus. For others in this room, you do know Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, and so you have security that you are, in fact, inside the kingdom of God. But the reality for those of us is that we have a propensity to drift back into reliance on our own ability to do good and work on the outside instead of looking deep inside our hearts where the original problem lied. So let me set up our section with this as we get moving on. Before and after the passage that we're going to be looking at today, uh, there are a series of healing miracles that Jesus does, healing many of the sick. He's He's got large crowds following him, and he's just healing people over and over and over. And I believe that this actually frames the section that we're going to be in today, the healings before and after Uh, I believe that Jesus is going to show us a sickness that is in us that is worse than any physical illness we could ever have. And that the purpose of his mission is not simply to heal physical sickness, but the deep sickness that is inside us all. So let's go to Dr. Jesus and let him examine us and first draw out our symptoms. So the first point this morning is this, the symptom. We focus on outward appearance instead of internal examination. We focus on outward appearance instead of internal examination. Look with me at Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do you disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Okay. First, we need to understand that this is not an honest, information-seeking question from the Pharisees. If we remember back in chapter 12, after an interaction with Jesus, it says that the Pharisees went away and started to conspire to figure out a way to destroy Jesus. Additionally, uh, Jesus right now is at the Sea of Galilee, which is about 60 miles from Jerusalem, where it says that the Pharisees came from. And so this group of Pharisees is intentionally leaving Jerusalem and coming all the way out. This is a long walk, 60 miles out into the wilderness, to come to Jesus And the reason is because they're conspiring against him. They want to destroy him. And so they ask about this hand washing, not because they're worried about the spread of E. coli, but they're they're trying to trap Jesus and show that, hey, he actually doesn't follow the traditions that we have. He doesn't fit into the religious box that we have that we assume that the Messiah is going to look like and he's going to come from. So let's look at Jesus' reply. Verse 3. He answered them. And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? I love Jesus. He doesn't mess around. He gets straight to the point. He answers their question with a question. Okay, you're going to ask me that. All right, well, why do you overrule God with your very traditions? Why do you supplant God's word with the things that you say and do? And then he gives a separate example about how they actually break the fifth commandment, which is honor thy father and mother, with a tradition they have. They had a tradition where... Um, uh, a, a part of what you did is you took care of your parents in their old age, um, and, and, you took, and, and that was a way in which you honored them. But they had a tradition where you could say to your parents, hey, that money that I had set aside, 
um, of, that was going to go to you, I'm actually pledging that to God. And in that way, you could actually keep the money, and you didn't have to honor your father and mother. So their tradition itself was breaking the fifth commandment of God. It had supplanted the word of God as an authority. And so Jesus points out the symptoms that their own traditions have supplanted the word of God. But here's the thing. It didn't start out that way. The, this, the tradition of the elders, which is what they use, is what they called the, the oral law or the Torah. And uh, this started as a way to build a fence around the law to help common Jewish people from inadvertently breaking the rules. So this, it started out as a good thing. It started out as a way to help people. However, over the years, things got added to it, and it became cumbersome, and it became problematic. And one of the other things that it did is it started to, to raise um, in importance and authority even equal to the Word of God, and in some cases like this, actually supplanting and replacing the Word of God as far as authority goes. And so... Um, the, the, the reality is that this propensity that, that the Pharisees were doing has not stopped now. We see this everywhere nowadays, don't we? You see this happen in churches and other places all the time in our current context. What started out as a movement centered around the gospel, centered around the word of God, over time ultimately loses track and becomes about something else entirely. In fact, you see movements like that that are now pushing away, distancing themselves from the Word of God because it no longer fits their priorities, it no longer fits their mission. But this system, or sorry, this problem wouldn't be systematic if it wasn't also personal. We all have a propensity to do this in our own lives as well. See if you can relate to some of this. Some, of you, some people have personal convictions because they don't want to fall into sin, which is good. Um, and so they abstain from certain things. They, 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 they don't drink, they don't smoke, they don't swear, they don't dance. All of this is done because of their personal convictions, which is a good and God-honoring thing. But this is what the human heart starts to do. It starts, it starts to, to, to give those things the same weight as the Word of God. And, and, and we start to think things like this. Okay, well, since I'm doing this, this must mean that all Christians should be doing this. Since I am doing this, Christians should always abstain from alcohol or cigarettes and never swear and definitely not dance. And then all of a sudden, the mark of a Christian looks like a lot of behaviors in the name of Jesus starts to become secondary. Others... On the opposite spectrum of this, maybe have been raised in an environment like this, and they've seen some of the issues with it. And when they bowed their knee to Christ, one of the freedoms that they experience in Christ is that they'll have the occasional beer, and they'll let the occasional swear word uh, uh, slip out. They'll smoke a cigarette. They feel free to dance their awkward white person dance. But... The same thing, the same cycle starts to happen in them as well as, as we start to call anyone who doesn't do the same things that we do a legalist or a hypocrite. Or they're probably not even a Christian anyway. I don't think they quite understand the gospel and the freedom that comes from it. And then all of a sudden, the mark of a Christian looks like a lot of behaviors, and the name of Jesus starts to become secondary. So we tend to raise our personal convictions and preferences to the same ground as the word of God. And we do this with all kinds of things. You name it. The theological camp we identify with. The type of mission that we care about. Or the political parties that we most identify with. You name it. We start to build these things into the word of God. But the problem is. 
is that when we say that a Christian should be this or shouldn't be that or should be this or shouldn't be that, many times, because of our sinful hearts, we fail to look into the Bible and see that the Bible never actually makes those claims in the first place. So the symptom that Jesus identifies in the Pharisees does not stop with them, but is something that's present in all of us. And you know what? We could stop here. We could treat the symptoms. We could say, okay, I see the problem. We need to pay more attention to the Word of God, which is true. So everyone needs to memorize their Bibles. Everyone needs to take Bible classes. Everyone needs to make sure they read their Bibles every day. And don't get me wrong, church. Don't hear me wrong. Those are amazing things. Those are good, good, good things. But Jesus has something deeper for us. He's gracious enough to give us the complete diagnosis so that we can see the actual problem that is leading and bubbling up from this. Look with me at verses 7 to 9. You hypocrites, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Do you see that Jesus says the problem is not in their preferences, it's in their heart. He is showing us that the symptoms are pointing to a problematic diagnosis. It's not just that our methods are bad, but at the very core, our hearts are bad as well. Jesus, the doctor, lays a heavy diagnosis on the Pharisees and potentially on us as well. And so the second point this morning is this, the diagnosis. Jesus exposes the problem, our hearts. Listen to Jesus as he fleshes this out a little bit more. Look with me at verses 10 and 11, and then we're going to jump down uh, to 15, and 20, 15 to 20. And he, Jesus, called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. And jump down to 15. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So congratulations, every junior high boy in here. You no longer have to wash your hands before you eat. The Bible says it. Jesus says this problem is deep and starts inside of us. There is a disease inside of us. We are not basically good people being acted upon by a sinful world. We are what makes this world sinful in the first place. The problem starts within us. Jesus ties all of this to our hearts. Now, the heart is an organ. We're not talking about the organ. When we talk about the heart, we're talking about the seat of desire and worship. You hear that? Your heart is where your desire and your worship comes from. It's not about external behaviors, but about internal desire and devotion. When we sin, it's not because of something outside of us, but it's because of something inside of us. 
The Pharisees work hard to keep the exterior clean, but their hearts are dead. In fact, Jesus calls them in different parts of the gospel whitewashed tombs. They're very, very, very clean and meticulous on the outside, but in the inside, they are full of death. External behavior without internal desire and devotion are dead. My grandpa had a term for this. He called it polishing a turd. (laughs) You can clean that thing up all you want. You ain't changing what it is. I was on my way to becoming an alcoholic at the age of 18, which also happened to be when I met Christ. Simply stopping drinking, however, was not going to fix what was broken inside of me. Quitting was good, and it was the right behavior, but it was powerless to change the problem that I had deep inside of me. When I get angry or frustrated with my kids and I lash out at them, I can and should work on strategies for self-control and, 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 and calming myself before I, speak, before I speak, but those strategies are not going to fix the problem that is deep inside my heart. I've walked with and counseled many men who have struggled with an addiction to pornography. What I've learned is that all the web blockers and accountability partners in the world do nothing to fix the heart. Again, those are right and good behaviors. We should flee sexual immorality. However, those behaviors do nothing to fix what is broken inside church. We need a deeper, deeper healing. So what is it for you this morning? Maybe it's legalism, like we talked about earlier. Or maybe you're using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's greed. Maybe you're hiding some sexual sin. Maybe this morning you were caught in the throes of an affair that you're not willing to bring out. Or maybe you've simply not had an affection for the things of Jesus for some time now. Jesus said that this symptom of not trusting God at, at his word is caused by a disease that affects so much more. So let's just pause right here. Take a little inventory of where we're at. It's not good news so far. We've got some things going on. We've all got some things that bubble up, that that show on the outside because of something that is happening on the inside. We are fundamentally broken at the heart level. We can change our behaviors, but we've learned that changing our behaviors are going to do nothing to solve the problem. And so here we stand. We feel maybe a little bit hopeless because we have no power to change our hearts. But that's when our, where our gracious and good God comes in. That is when he steps into the picture here. The good news, the amazing news, is that the brokenness of our hearts is exactly where God desires to engage us, to heal us. Look at Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-three. It'll be up on the board. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. God will do it, church. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It has been in the plans the whole time for God to heal us at our very deepest need at the heart level. And the very next scene in our passage, I think Jesus is showing us what a healthy heart actually looks like. He is gracious enough to show us what this heart actually looks like and what he can do in us. He's going to show us through a very, very unlikely source that a healthy heart is one that humbly submits itself to him over and over again. The final point this morning is this, the cure. A humble heart that trusts in and worships Jesus is our only treatment. 
Look with me at verses 21 and 22. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Okay, so Jesus here is traveling outside of Israel. He's traveling into the land of the outsiders, into the land of the Gentiles. Here he encounters a Canaanite woman. Now, it's important that we understand what, why the Bible identifies her as Canaanite. The Canaanites were uh, uh, enemies of Israel going all the way back to the days of Moses. So this woman comes from a tribe that is actual a direct enemy with Israel. So there's three very unlikely things happening here. Jesus, who is called to the lost sheep of Israel, is traveling outside of Israel. Number two, a Gentile woman approaches Jesus, which didn't happen. Gentile women did not approach Jewish men. And then number three, this woman being a Canaanite was the very enemy of God, of God's people. And here's the thing. She knew that too. She called Jesus have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. She knew exactly who she was approaching. She knew that she was a direct enemy of God, and yet humbly she approaches Jesus knowing that she is his enemy. As if to highlight this idea of the upside-down kingdom, Jesus is now engaged with literally the most unlikely of characters. So let's see where this goes. Verses 23 and 24. But he, Jesus, did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So at first, this is the reaction that one would have assumed was going to happen. Such was the relationship between Jews and Gentiles that the Jews wouldn't have even seen Gentiles as worthy of like a verbal response to completely ignore them. The, the woman is crying out loudly, and, and she's starting to become very, very annoying. So G, the disciples are like, Jesus, get this woman out of here. But I think what Jesus is doing is he's setting something up here. He's setting the stage for something to happen that's going to shock them and, and, and the rest of the world, really. Let's look at verse 25. But she came back and knelt before him, saying, Lord help me. Okay, she ups the ante. She hears him say, I've come only for the lost sheep of Israel. She knows that's not her, but knowing, still knowing she's an enemy of God, what does she do? Instead of going away from Jesus, she draws near him. She kneels at his feet. She calls him Lord again. She asks for help. She asks for mercy. Verse 26, and he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Okay, probably not the answer she was looking for. First, when he says children's bread, he's talking about the blessings of the kingdom of God. So that's what he's talking about. Throwing it to the dogs would be throwing it to those outside of the kingdom of Israel. But you're probably asking the same question that I was asking when I read this. Is Jesus insulting this woman? Like, what is going on? This seems rather harsh. And after reading through some things and several commentaries, there is some disagreement, but this is, this is my best guess as to what is going on here. We have to remember that Jesus is sovereign and God, and so he knows the end of the story here. He knows what is going to happen. He's not just calling her a dog and walking away 
what he is doing is he is using language that would have been common and expected at that time and in this particular relationship. He does not view her as a dog. What he is doing is he is trying to draw out the faith of this woman, which only makes the story more shocking because the Gentiles, or sorry, the Jews believed that the Gentiles were so unspiritual that they were incapable of faith, that they were so unspiritual that even being around them could make them unclean. And so there's no way they would have thought this woman could have any faith or see what is actually going on. And so Jesus is right in line here of what you would have expected if you had been there. The woman at this point has, has had every reason to give up and leave. In fact, it has to be getting incredibly, incredibly awkward and annoying. Have you ever been there? This is like your cousin Billy at the Thanksgiving table telling everyone about his flat earth theories. You just want him to go away. You just want him to be quiet. Get out of here. That is what is happening with this lady. Everyone is looking at this woman. They're annoyed with her. And not only that, the person that she is looking to for mercy seems to be rejecting her. So let's see what happens next. Does she hightail it? 27 and 28. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Church, that's amazing. We cannot miss this moment here. First, the woman incredibly agrees with Jesus. She says, yes, I am unworthy of you. I'm, I, I would be satisfied with even the leftovers that fall from your table, even the crumbs. Church, she sees Jesus for who he truly is. She sees he is a God not that looks at our, out, our circumstances, where we grew up, if we've been doing the right things. He looks at our heart. She knows she's an enemy of God, but she is humbly bringing herself to Jesus and throwing herself at his feet. Church, the Canaanite woman actually sees herself the way that we should all see ourselves. She diagnoses herself correctly. She has no right to stand before a holy God, and neither do we. But she pursues the only one that can rescue her, Jesus Christ. And can we just sit in this moment for a second and just just see the irony and see the beauty in this story? The outsider, the one everyone looks down on, is the one that actually sees her true condition. This is the reality of all the disciples and all the Pharisees and all of us. We are wandering dogs that should be happy to pick up a few scraps from the table. But, and this is incredible, guys, here is the invitation from Jesus. He doesn't wipe some of the crumbs off onto the floor to us, but welcomes us to sit at the table with him as equals. He gives the woman the bread. He heals her daughter. He welcomes her to the table. Her humility and her faith in Jesus lead to healing. Church, it's not about our external appearance or our behaviors. It's about our heart posture. This woman has a humble and persistent heart that trusts in Jesus despite all odds, despite everything that should have sent her running the other way. The hard hearts of the religious leaders stand in incredible contrast here. They know the prophecies. They've seen Jesus perform the miracles. They've seen the evidence. They have seen the very passages where he points to show them that he is the Messiah, yet their hard hearts blinds them to the fact that he is Christ. 
It is entirely possible to do all the right things but miss the point completely. Psalm 51.17 says this, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You want a counseling strategy? There it is. Brokenness and repentance. Theological understanding is good and important, but without a humble and broken heart, it is worthless. Knowing and memorizing your Bible is good and absolutely incredibly important, but without a humble and broken heart, it is worthless. So I don't know where you're at this morning. Maybe you've been trusting in your own behaviors, in your own goodness, and have never humbled yourself and found yourself broken in front of Jesus. If that is you, I want to encourage you this morning to listen to the words of Jesus. Let them humble you and sink into your heart and break it. And then take that broken heart along with your life and give them to him. Maybe you did come in here this morning a broken person, fully aware of your failings, of your limitations, but you have never submitted that broken heart to Jesus. Church, listen to this. This is very important. A broken heart is just a broken heart unless it looks to Jesus. I want to encourage you to look to Jesus to heal what is broken inside of you. For those of us in this room who have given our lives to Jesus, would we first and frequently check our own hearts? The reality is, is we have a propensity to go back here. If you've given your life to Jesus, you have a soft heart towards Jesus. But we tend to go back to our old, hard-hearted ways so very quickly. And so this requires a continual submission to Jesus over and over and over again at the heart level. Would we frequently ask the question, is my desire to submit to and worship Jesus or something else? If we're stuck in a sin, would we check our hearts and see where we are trusting and worshiping something else other than Jesus? If we're suffering, could we check our hearts and see if our hope is in Jesus in the midst of suffering? Conversely, if things are going well, would we check our hearts all the more? I don't know about you guys, but for me, this seems the hardest, not in the rough times, not in the times of struggle, but really in in what seem like the smooth times. If I'm struggling with a sin or if I'm uh, suffering in some way, usually I'm going to prayer fairly quickly and, 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 and I'm connecting my heart to Jesus very quickly. But here's where the problem lies. I'm, sin, I'm sinful, I sin all the time. But if I can look back on you know, the last year or two and say, you know what, I actually haven't really blown it in a big way for the last year or two and things seem to be going pretty smoothly, that is when my heart starts to untether itself from a complete dependence on Jesus. That is when I am in the most danger, is in these times of, of where things seem to be going well. Because the reality is my heart is still evil, but I've started to convince myself that I must be doing pretty well, and then I start to untether myself from Jesus. When in reality, we always, always, always need to completely submit our hearts over and over again, like the Canaanite woman, over and over again to Jesus, bringing our hearts to Jesus, bringing our desires to Jesus, bringing our worship to Jesus in the good times and in the bad times. Now, additionally, with the story of the Canaanite woman, I think there's something unique there that speaks into our context as a church, um, and especially uh, in, as, as a church in an increasingly divided society, in an increasingly divided country. 
So as we close, I want to press in one final application for us as a church body. Is that okay? Do I have permission to do that? Is that all right? Yes. Okay. All right. We're getting there. Don't worry. I promise. When our hearts are soft and humble towards Jesus, that tends also to soften and humble our hearts towards one another. Jesus here is taking the first few steps in connecting people from all tribes, all tongues, all nations into the family of God. If we remember, God promised Abraham to bless all nations through him. Well, this is Jesus setting the foundation for that. And during, when he uh, ascends into heaven, he says, take this gospel of mine into all nations. And that is when the gospel exploded into the rest of the world. And we, everyone sitting here, is a fruit of that. The gospel didn't start here. We are a fruit of the gospel going to all nations. Now, all tribes, all tongues, all nations, that means there's going to be differences. There's differences in this room. And the problem with differences is there's differences, right? If we can admit it, differences are hard. In this room, we have different races, different ages, people from different socioeconomic statuses, different ways of raising and educating our children, different passions, different giftings, different struggles. There are Democrats and Republicans in this room, both of whom worship and submit to Jesus in an authentic way. I don't know this theoretically. I I see faces and I know names, and I know that to be a fact. And the world would would tell you, the world would have you believe that you have irreconcilable differences. The world would look in on this room right here and say that, no, no, those people have irreconcilable differences. But we know, in reality, we all have one thing in common. Like the Canaanite woman, we were once on the outside looking into the kingdom of God. None of us merited acceptance into his kingdom. There is zero reason for pride in any of our hearts. We do not deserve anything that we have been given. So church, in pride, our differences can divide us. Or in humility, like the heart of the Canaanite woman, they can be a beautiful expression of the kingdom of God. Differences have a way of pushing us either to pride or humility. It is very, uh, very hard to stay comfortable when you're confronted with differences. We can isolate ourselves or form a bubble of comfort around ourselves and only be in actual relationship with people that share our same preferences. We can then, we see the cycle and we saw it happen, become like the Pharisees and start to assume that all Christians share my same preferences, the same things that I enjoy or think or whatever it might be. But when we put ourselves in actual relationship with people who don't always think like us but are simply united in Jesus, it is incredibly humbling. So church, my challenge for you this morning and for us is to step outside of our bubble of comfort. Put yourself next to the Canaanite woman, whoever that might be to you. Be in actual relationship with people that are different from you. Challenge yourself to do something more than give a hug or a handshake on Sunday, although that is a good start. Get into each other's world and try to know and understand each other. Many of you are already doing this and are incredible examples of humility to all of us. But can we as a church move towards each other and others who are not like us in the name of Jesus? Would we not be defined by our preferences, but by our devotion to Jesus and submission to his word and his word alone? Would we be united in humility and not divided by pride? Would we be desperately, would we desperately and diligently come to Jesus over and over and over again? Amen? Let's pray.
God, I just thank you. As I was looking and reading through the scripture, things just seemed so hopeless in many ways. Lord, we have no power to change our hearts, but then we see that you do. You rescue us. You give us new hearts, Lord. You soften our hearts. You move toward us. Lord, thank you for not coming and dying on the cross and leaving and saying, okay, good luck. Keep yourself together until I get back. But no, Lord, you meet us in those places. And so, Lord, I don't know where everyone is at this morning in this room, but Lord, I do know that you are there with them. And so, God, I just pray, would you make your presence known in those deep recesses of their heart, whether it's a sin they're struggling with, suffering, whatever it might be, God, would you make them confident that you are there with them in those deep recesses, healing them, God, giving them a new heart. Oh, Lord, we love you. We worship you. We just pray that you would continue over and over to increase our dependence on you. In Jesus' name, amen.